Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the fourth floor of the Claussen Center at Bethel University, it's channel 3900. And it's level 200. It's election shock therapy. That's a lot of numbers, Sam. That is. This is our 200th episode on the channel, which, which started with Election Shock Therapy. Uh, I think this is like episode 66 or 67 of, uh, of Election Shock yep. Therapy, maybe even 68. But, but yeah, this is our 200th episode on the channel. We've renamed the channel uh, to Channel 3900. Why is so. this Channel 3900? Um, well, we changed it from live from AC Second because no one lives on AC Second anymore. And well, the physicists do. Right, but none of us are physicists. Right, yeah. um, and uh, I wanted something that sounded more like a channel, uh, like a TV channel, because mm-hmm. uh, that's really what this is. There's lots of different shows. In fact, we have five shows coming out this week. Wow. Um, one for every day. Um, so... Uh, when I was a kid, I loved the I loved the idea of calling it channel with a number because like now you know we think about networks and you know your NBC, CBS, TNT, mm-hmm. TBS. But I like the idea of like channel four, channel nine, and then the number thirty nine hundred. That is that's our our uh, mailing address, right? Mm-hmm. We are thirty nine hundred Bethel Drive is our. Yep. If you, if you want to send stuff to Chris Moore, that's the uh, the mailing address. So. Do you want to send stuff to Chris Moore? I don't know. I'm just saying if somebody <laughs> wanted to send you, what would you like them to send you? Oh, um, fan mail, of course. Like actual written mail. That'd be kind of cool. That would, that'd be cool, but a <clears throat> little bit weird. Like, If you want to more easily send mail, you can send it to channel3900 at gmail.com, there which we is go. our new address. Oh. There we go. So a uh, trivia question yes, sir. was, since I'm the new guy here, yeah. so was Election Shock Therapy the first podcast on this particular podcast channel, it was back yes. in the day. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. Right. So this started as election shock therapy, and then around Christmas time, twenty sixteen, we we changed it to a network because we wanted to start doing some other stuff. Right. So now that said, you've been podcasting for a long time, Sam. Yeah, this is probably podcast episode th- maybe three or four hundred thirty five for me. So we we've done a lot of episodes of EST. But that was unnervingly specific. Is this podcast episode four hundred thirty five? I think for you? so. Yeah, because because we did <laughs> we did one hundred and seventy episodes of CWC the radio show starting back in uh, two thousand seven. So like, okay. I've been we've been doing this and for those a while. Are in syndication now. So yeah, that's nice. yeah, yeah. So you know, <laughs> there's a lot of EST episodes, but there's a lot of old episodes of uh, CWC the radio show. Nice. So. Okay, so just to reinforce a couple of things Sam said there, uh, you can find us on um, Podbean and on Apple uh, and on iTunes, and um, now you can find us on Spotify. That's right. So Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, all those places, yeah. Yep, so look for Channel 3900. And please subscribe. Yes, please. Yeah, so so we're, that's our new, our new push now. If you're listening to this but you don't subscribe on one of those things, please do so because you might love EST, but we're pushing out all kinds of other stuff. We just... Just an hour ago, uh, we recorded an episode of Sarah Shady Public Philosopher, which is going up on Thursday. Uh, It's about animal ethics, and it's really, really interesting. So uh, you should give that a listen. For those of you unfamiliar with this process, subscribing doesn't cost you anything. It just means you automatically get all the podcasts we're producing. Right. It costs you nothing. It enriches your life. 
yeah, and the and the podcasts just come automatically to you. So, well, we've we've come here not just to promo <laughs> our channel. Oh, really? Oh, that's <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yep, but also to talk about um, people possibly getting canceled, and uh, specifically uh, the president of the United States. So, if you haven't if you haven't figured out by now, Andy Bramson is not here with us today. Um, Has he been canceled? He has not been canceled. Oh, okay. uh, he is also president of the faculty senate. That is, uh, but he is not being impeached. Uh, Donald Trump is um, facing an impeachment inquiry. We talked a little bit about the process of impeachment last time, but I want to turn to my good colleague here, Matt Kukum, to talk a little bit about some of the questions surrounding impeachment. Now that the process um, is, has, we've had a little bit of time now. We've had a little bit of time to uh, for for the public to react uh, to the impeachment inquiry process, and for some of the news, some of the news and revelations to come out about the grounds for a possible impeachment, including just in the last 24 hours, a second whistleblower coming forward to corroborate the the same allegations being made by the first whistleblower. So not new allegations, just just conf- corroborated ones. And was this a whistleblower from back when that happened or somebody now? That's correct. Okay. So, so. it was another person who also had secondary uh, secondary exposure to the information that took place in the Ukraine phone call who also lodged the complaint. But was the complaint lodged back in August? I believe so, okay. yes. That's and there correct. might even be more whistleblowers, too. It's um, entirely possible. Some of whom might have firsthand information as opposed to secondhand information. So let's start with that then, Matt. So can you talk to a little bit? Um, what, one of the, the first things I want to get at here is for our listeners who are getting inundated with daily updates to this story, what are the important parameters that they should be paying attention to? What are the important facts in the ground versus what's some of the dross and turn of the news cycle? Right. So so let's let's lay out a few of the basic facts, um, and then we can use that as a basis for the rest of our discussion. So, so we know that, of course, there is a whistleblower, and this original whistleblower report, again, to review, um, was on a conversation between President Trump and President Zelensky of the Ukraine. And... Um, in this conversation, of which we have a call summary, not an actual transcript, but a call summary, we see um, this um, possible um, quid pro quo by Trump um, to pressure uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainian government um, into investigating Joe Biden, perhaps in exchange um, for military aid. Um, and right. so the allegation is that this is an abuse of power. So so there's a second whistleblower um, that's, um, that is apparently um, lodged a similar complaint. There might be other whistleblowers with firsthand accounts. There will probably be closed-door hearings of those whistleblowers um, testifying before um, some of the various House committees, probably the House Intelligence Committee, Mm -hmm. maybe the Judiciary Committee. And these are closed-door hearings because uh, you want to protect the identity of whistleblowers as long as possible. Of course, that creates complications of literally getting these whistleblowers into um, the Capitol building to actually have um, closed-door hearings. So that'll be interesting. But there will be hearings at some point. Uh, There's currently a fight between the House and the the executive over various uh, records um, that could shed light on the relationship between uh, the administration and Ukraine. So the House is subpoenaing um, uh, various records. Trump is trying to resist um, those requests for documentation. Um, Usually in these cases, um, the, the House wins. Um, so expect um, gradually for the House to get the information that it wants. 
Uh, we also know that recently Trump has been doubling down. So in a speech last Thursday, um, he basically openly said that China and the Ukraine should basically investigate political rivals, his political rivals. Specifically Biden and his son Hunter Biden. Exactly, exactly. He's also called for the whistleblower to be exposed. He said that um, the one of the congressmen that's leading this probe um, ought to be arrested for treason. He's tweeting that this that is a Adam coup. Adam Schiff. Right, Adam Schiff, um, who, you know, to be clear, some of his behavior has, has um, not been up to um, certain standards, but nonetheless calling for his arrest um, for treason, which is a whole other thing. Um, so, so Trump is is acting like Trump. Um, the Trump administration, we know, um, has uh, tried to use um, a potential meeting with Zelensky to try to um, get some leverage um, so that the Ukrainian government would, in fact, investigate Joe Biden. We know that uh, Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal lawyer, um, has visited the Ukraine um, in order to try to um, get the Ukrainian <coughs> government to. Mm-hmm dig up dirt on Joe Biden, and Giuliani actually admitted as much in a Fox News interview back in April. Um, And we also know that there's interviews with various diplomats and officials from the U.S. and Ukraine that reveal that Ukraine government felt pressure to give into the White House's um, wishes. Um, So so those are the facts on the ground. Um, So we have clear evidence that Trump wanted and still wants to Ukraine and perhaps other countries as well to get dirt on the Bidens. The question Mm -hmm. really that remains is whether this is directly linked to um, the withholding of military aid until over the summer when that aid was ultimately released under pressure from Congress. So that's kind of the the big open question at this point. Was military aid used um, to to ultimately pressure the Ukraine? And there's good indications that it was, but that's what the debate is currently about. Is that essential to this uh, to this being problematic? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, I mean... So, so, so well, I, my question is, because I've heard people say... Um, and this is from uninformed me. Um, I've heard people say like, "Oh, when 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 Trump talked, you know, in the press conference thing about um, about Ukraine and China, that that's that he's doing it again, but that mm-hmm. but he's not then connecting it to. There's no quid quid pro quo there. Correct. Right. So and that is so, different. Right. Okay. So that that's so is that not problematic? Or I don't know. No, I would argue that it's problematic from a normative sense. But in terms of it being a potential impeachable offense, I think there is a clearer violation of abuse of power um, in the phone call, the alleged phone call to Ukraine because there is an implicit quid pro quo that Donald Trump is offering goods that he can provide by virtue of his office in exchange for for investigation of his political rival. Okay. Where simply asking China to do the investigation is a much less clear version of that. Right. And I mean, and you can speak to this too, Chris, but I mean, quid pro quo is an essential part of diplomacy and international relations, right? Mm-hmm. So when a you know the president or diplomat is talking with a counterpart, it's always about you do this for us and we do this for you. The, the real question is not whether or not withholding military aid um, for the purposes of getting Ukraine to crack down on corruption. That might actually be a viable policy. The real question is, uh, was military aid withheld um, for the purposes of Ukraine providing some sort of um, support to the Trump campaign in the form of digging up political dirt sure. on a political rival? And that's why ultimately this is not simply a legal matter, but it's very much a political right. matter. Mm-hmm. Is Donald Trump 
asking Ukraine to do something which directly benefits him and his reelection prospects rather than benefiting the interests of the United States. Right. It's okay if there's a quid pro quo if it advance the interests of the entire United States. It's right. different if it's merely the political interests of the office holder of the president in this case. Mm-hmm. And that and the interesting thing it will act I mean this will ultimately partially involve an investigation of uh, of the claim about Joe Biden. Um, not that whether or not Joe Biden and Hunter Biden deserve to be investigated by Ukraine actually ultimately plays into the, whether this was a quid pro quo or not. But uh, there is a um, there is a question of what actually Biden was doing in his role in Ukraine and whether or not then Trump is acting in the interest of the United States when he at- makes this kind of claim. Um, and so I think that that is part of what's going to be litigated in the press, if not in the congressional hearings itself. Right. If Biden wasn't running for president, it would be an entirely different prospect. I would Absolutely. Say. But but again, because Biden is is the front runner for the Democratic Party at this point, that might change. Um, and thus, you know, Trump's potential rival in the 2000, you know, 20, you know, presidential election. Yep. That's what makes this uh, a potentially a really big deal. So we don't know what else might be coming down the pipe yet. We do know a few, a, a sort of a roadmap. Um, so as you said, some of these, some of the committees will be conducting investigations, closed door hearings, probably hearing from at least the first whistleblower, now quite possibly the second whistleblower, um, and corroborating this story. Uh, one quick question for you. Do we know whether an actual um, verbatim transcript or a recording of the phone call exists? So I had I had read that an actual verbatim recording, if not a recording, then a transcript exists on some highly secret and secure server somewhere, and that mm-hmm. that might be released at some point. I haven't. That was last week. I haven't heard anything um, today as of this recording about it. But it's been hard to keep up with the flurry of, of news articles um, surrounding this issue. So, I mean, to be clear, what we have now is a very accurate summary of that conversation. Right. Because whenever one head of state calls another head of state, there are multiple people, if not dozens of people listening into that conversation. And at least some of them on both sides are note takers who are taking right. essentially real-time notes. And what we have are the real-time notes of someone listening to the conversation. But if we're trying to determine whether a specific quid pro quo was offered, this gets down to the level of semantics and it listening does. to word by word specific offers and reactions will be important. And we have heard Trump for now for several years make public remarks. And we know that uh, some of his language is circuitous and sometimes it's a little it's not exactly linear. So knowing what was said and who and what was and how those react how reactions occur to what was said will be significant. And it would actually be helpful to have an actual audio recording as well right. if one does exist, because there's a lot of cues that you can um, pick up through audio recordings that don't appear on paper. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be be helpful for understanding the truth of the matter and what exactly transpired in that conversation. So we have we have a an, an impeachment pre- uh, inquiry proceeding. Um, and as a consequence of that, uh, public sentiment has shifted um, on impeachment. Prior to the impeachment inque- in- pimpery, sure, <laughs> impeachment inquiry, um, uh, only about 35 to 40 percent, depending on the poll, of Americans supported um, impeaching the president. 
that number has climbed steadily over the last couple of weeks, and now it's about a 50-50 split, I think. Matt, is that accurate? Yeah, it's like a 40-47, like 47-47 split, and with some variation, right? right? So it is an increase of support. Previously, um, a majority of Americans, not a large majority, but a majority of Americans opposed impeachment, but now it's a it's an even split. Um, and we'll see if that, um, if that reverts um, back to what it was previously or if that support for impeachment actually grows. Um, and as you might expect, uh, a lot of the support for or opposition to impeachment falls along party, party lines Absolutely. as well. I am interested. About 15 percent or so of Republicans support impeachment. About 20 percent or, or maybe, maybe it's 10 percent of, of Democrats oppose it. I'm fascinated by those two groups and I'd like to know more about those two groups. Yeah, and, and what I find even more interesting is is the independents and how mm-hmm. their opinion about impeachment has shifted. So support for impeachment among independents has gone from about 34% to 41%, and that's really important mm-hmm. um, because it's ultimately these independents um, that Trump is going to need to get on board um, because he doesn't have enough votes just in his own base to actually win re-election, right? right. And so, so he won amongst independents, especially in key Midwestern states, um, back when he was elected in 2016, and he's going to need some of those same independents to vote for him. And if if some of them are now in favor of impeachment, that's going to be that's going to be a big problem for him in the future. Um, there's so we'll, we'll see if support for impeachment grows amongst these independents over time. But right now, um, just in the general population of the country, it's a pretty even split. Can I pick up uh, these three categories: Democrats, Republicans, and Independents mm-hmm. a little bit. Is there any variation amongst these three groups in terms of how much information they have, high information versus low information voters? Are independents more likely to be low information voters? In a, in a lot of ways, yes. Um, so political science research has, has shown that um, people who um, tend to be most involved in politics are the people who tend to be, you know, actually read the most political news, but they're also the people who tend to be the most partisan and the most right. ideological, right? right. Um, and so independents, um, for the most part, aren't as tuned in to everyday political news um, as their their uh, partisan you know, fellow citizens, right? right? And so, so they're not necessarily going to be picking up on all the nuances um, that the partisans or we political scientists right. uh, might be picking up on. They're going to be looking at, at the bigger picture. Um, and so their perspective is a little bit different. Um, from their perspective, um, impeachment has been something that's been thrown around um, for the past two years, right? And so Democrats are going to have to work extra hard to sell that um, sell um, impeachment um, this time around. That something else is new. Something right. is different. Something is different and something is significant and something is truly worthy of, of impeaching Trump. Um, so one thing to pay attention to is to see how – I'll use the, 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 the more fancy word here, but how stochastic – these responses are within the independence, especially to new news, to, to news from the investigations, to news from whistleblowers, to see whether or not um, what kinds of things move the needle um, in terms of support for impeachment, that sort of thing. Um, this is this is important because the Democratic leadership, especially Nancy Pelosi, has has really pegged Democratic. Um, motives for impeachment to public opinion. And she has been relatively reticent to get too far out on, of, ahead of public opinion mm-hmm. in terms of impeachment. So as public opinion continues to climb and support for pu- impeachment continues to climb, we'll see the Democrats push this narrative forward more readily. But 
Well, yeah, and, and to speak to that point, um, it's interesting. So last time uh, we were on this podcast, we talked about sort of the strategy that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi has been taking. And it's interesting to note that the House has not taken a formal vote to open an impeachment inquiry. Not well, yet. Not yet. But the question is, you know, when does that come and why hasn't the House taken a formal vote? Now, previous previously, what we had in the cases of like Nixon, for example, or Clinton, before the formal inquiries kicked off and the committees went out to do, conduct their sort of impeachment investigations, there was a formal vote. But a formal vote requires what? It requires all the members of the House to go on the record, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a group of 10 or 12 um members of the Democratic Party, including here uh, in Minnesota. Yeah, exactly. Who who are who represent swing districts, purple mm-hmm. districts, um, districts that um, in which there's greater support for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they go on the record as supporting, you know, an impeachment inquiry before even all of the facts are out, that's going to put them in a very tough spot. And so Pelosi, I think, is is smart to actually not to begin the investigation, but to do that in such a way that these members don't have to go on the record. And eventually, perhaps, if enough evidence comes out from these investigations, these members who are, you know, moderate members from relatively moderate districts will feel comfortable actually voting for impeachment. But for now, she's basically shielding those members. And that's the politically smart thing for her to do. So she's trying to buy time for more evidence to mount so they have more cover. Right. Is she also hoping to get maybe a few Republican defectors to join their side as well? I think it would look a lot better if she did, right? Because, I mean, as of right now, she doesn't even have her entire House caucus behind her for right. impeachment. And if if they hold an impeachment vote and not even in the entire Democratic Party in the House votes for impeachment, that looks bad. It also looks bad if it's on, along purely partisan lines, right? Right. Um, and if it's along purely, purely partisan lines, you know, the public, including these independents, are going to view this as this whole exercise of impeaching the president as a purely partisan exercise and not really a change from the, the usual partisan politics that have characterized, you know, our our, you know, our, our history over the past 10 years. This is where the polls look less good for Democrats because a majority of Americans still say that Democrats are pursuing impeachment of the president for political reasons. Right. And they're going to have to overcome that uh, to get more public support. Right. And so that means they're going to have to work extra hard to appear to be fair minded, mm-hmm. um, to um, be reasonable. Um, and, you know, to be frank, not all of the Democrats have done a good job at that. That's exactly right. Let's um, shift gears and move away from public opinion and talk a little bit about the Constitution. I'm not a constitutional scholar, but let me ask you all about the impeachment clause itself. Now, my understanding of the impeachment clause in the Constitution is that there can be sort of a narrow interpretation of the impeachment clause or more of a broad interpretation of the impeachment clause. What I can say with a certainty is that this is a political process and not a judicial one. Yes. But basically, the impeachment clause alludes to officials being removed from office for high crimes and misdemeanors. Is is in the way that the Democrats are pursuing this impeachment inquiry over this Ukraine phone call, is this a more narrow, specific reading of, of the impeachment clause, or is this being generous with their interpretation of what the impeachment clause was designed to do? All right, so there's several things that we could say here. First of all, the Constitution says that a president can be removed for treason bribery or high crime. True, true, true. Good point. Treason and bribery are a little bit more straightforward. It's the high crimes and misdemeanors that's tricky. The The tricky thing about high crimes and misdemeanors is that um, a an actual crime 
mm-hmm. does not actually have to be involved. So you can, because the term high crimes and misdemeanors isn't actually an older term that comes from um, the British system, the parliamentary system, hundreds of years ago. And basically, it's a way of describing um, some sort of serious, egregious, you know, weighty, um, you know, crime against the Constitution or the political right. system as a whole. That's detrimental to the system. That's detrimental to the country in some way. So an actual crime does not have to be involved. It's it's an intentionally broad term. There's not a fixed meaning. Mm. It's not defined in the Constitution. It's not defined in statutory law. It's not. I don't even think it's been defined by the courts. And so so it has no fixed meaning. Its meaning is determined by what? By the House. Sure. Ultimately. Um, and as you stated already, this is not a so much a judicial question as it is a political one. So you could even have a situation in which um, a president committed a crime, but that wouldn't be considered sufficient grounds for removal. So Clinton is an example of this. He was impeached by the House um, and it's known that he actually committed perjury, perjury. which is an actual crime. Um, mm-hmm. But the Senate decided that this wasn't sufficient grounds for his um, removal. His removal. They right. censured him, but that right. was it. Yep. Right. So so. Uh, you know, an actual crime is neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition necessarily for mm. removal from from office. So that's that's one of the most you know the first thing to note um, about this. But ultimately, it's a political tool to remove presidents uh, in cases of abuse of power or executive overreach, as determined by the House and the Senate. Ultimately, they're the ones that ultimately call this shot. So now let me put you on the spot here just a little bit. If we could take this case out of the current political context, if we could somehow scrub off the Democrat, Republican names off of the Trump, uh, Pelosi, all these, if we could just sort of make, sort of homogenize this a little bit, this, would this be, would the, the circumstances we're looking at here be kind of considered normal circumstances under which one party would consider impeachment of an executive? It's a great question. If we were to, to you know, go all political theory on us, put this behind the veil of ignorance, so yes, to speak, exactly, um, and and you know, obfuscate all the names. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's hard to say um, because I mean, part of the impeachment process is, is that it is political. It's not merely theoretical, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and that's something that um, that the framers of the Constitution worried about is that the impeachment power actually would be exercised because of political reasons, not because there was um, not because the political actors were trying to make sort of an objective judgment over whether or not power was abused, but because of, you know, the partisanship of the Congress vis-a-vis the president. So Alexander Hamilton, actually, in Federalist number 65, talks about this. Um, And he says that, you know, ultimately, it might be that the presidents are removed from office because it was a partisan consideration, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Go on. Um, I th- my sense of this, and I, I, my sense is more from an international perspective, and so I'm not really thinking about this as a constitutional legal scholar, but just um, in situations where other chief executives in other uh, developed democracies have run afoul of their legislatures and have in various kinds of ways been removed from office, this is within the general norms of um, liberal democracies for the removal of power. Um, generally speaking, abuse of the office, which is if Donald Trump has really offered a quid pro quo as as, as, as is being alleged, is an abuse of power in the way that I'm considering. 
um, then this would be the kind of question that would would, would run afoul of other kinds of, de of developed liberal democracies. So in that way, I would consider this to be a normal inquiry. Um, that That is to say, I don't think the Democrats are going to heroic measures to um, I was going to say Trump up charges, but uh, <laughs> to foist charges on the president right. in an effort to to, dis, to to get rid of him. It may still be a political process, but this right. seems like a legitimate question to be right. asking. Um, I I think I know the answer. So at least I think I know the answer that I want to think about this. But um, I'll, I'll pose the two of you, too. Um, as we move closer to the possibility of articles of impeachment, First of all, we need, as, as you said, we need to have an impeachment inquiry first, a vote on that, and then subsequently an impeachment uh, impeachment inquiry could lead to articles of impeachment. Articles of impeachment would be the actual charges passed by the House, which would then be passed along to the Senate, and the Senate would hold a trial on those articles. Mm -hmm. That whole process could eventually lead to the removal of the president. Along any part, any uh, along any one of those steps, this process could then short circuit, and the process could end. That said, as Christians, we have um, we have to think about our relationship to power and authority in our system, and secular power and secular authority in our system, and just as happened. Um, over the last couple of presidencies, when presidents have done things that some parts of Christendom have have argued against, we regularly he here invoked Romans uh, 13, this idea that we need to be subject to the civilian powers of um, the God has put in place. To your uh, to your minds, and especially to your sort of thinking about sort of um, political theory around Christians being subject to authorities. How do we how do we interpret impeachment? Well, wouldn't <clears throat> I'm going to answer this or pose a, a potential answer to this um, because I don't know anything, and we'll let Matt actually talk then. <clears throat> but when I think about those pieces in Romans being used, you know, my my first sense is to think about a medieval Christian reading that, mm -hmm. <clears throat> or Martin Luther talking about secular authority. And but those are coming from very different systems of of government. So I mean, I Absolutely. would so I would I would think. If we're looking at the source of authority, the source of authority is – if the source of authority is the Constitution, then mm -hmm. we are actually doing that because the Constitution lays out this process to do this, right? The authority is not uh, – really is not the president, is not the Congress, yes. is not the judiciary. But it is – in mm -hmm. this context, it's exactly. the Constitution, right? That, right. Yep. Um, I and I don't want to turn this into yes, yes, of course, right. But that's exactly my. Whoa! Thought, so I did, I did okay. But, yeah. Okay. Good. Pass with flying colors. All right. But because we subscribe in the United States to our, to a rule of law, right? That means there are there are no individuals in the United States that should be above the law, and that includes the chief executive or any members of Congress. And so, to the extent that um, those pe people exist in those offices, they need to be subject to the Constitution. And it's the Constitution that's the authority, not the president, not the Speaker of the House, or anyone else for that matter. Right. And, and you know, we, we have a Constitution which provides for a number of different things. But one of the things is an, option, an opportunity to actually elect our officials, including mm -hmm. the president, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a viable mechanism for holding presidents to account. And we have a Constitution that says that presidents can be removed. And there's a whole process that's spelled out for that. So it's not a disrespect of the authority of the government. Um, to follow, you know, the law, you know, the constitutional law 
in dealing with this particular controversy to, you know, actually, you know, to to vote Trump out or to remove him through the impeachment mechanism. Right. Right. Because as both of you pointed out, you know, we live in a nation of laws. The law is king. Right. Mm -hmm. Lex Rex. Um, It isn't Trump who is king or any president. It is the law. And we can actually obey the law and still remove a president from office. So so this honestly is not a difficult test case for Christians, you might say. A much diff- more difficult test case test case would be, um, should Christians be allowed to rebel against their government, overthrow the whole thing? Right. That's a much more difficult All right, now I want to go full Columbo on you guys for a second here. <laughs> Just one more thing. All right. Uh, You're speaking my language. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Sweet. All right. Um, boy, man, if Peter Falk, that could be another alternate casting for me. I'd, that would be, I'd be pretty, pretty wow. stoked about that. Let's um, talk more about this off air. Okay, sounds good. Here's my uh, here's my wait. Just one more thing, though. As much as we all sort of yes, 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 agree that the Constitution is the is the order of the day, is the, is the ruling bo- is the ruling document for our for our country, and not the president and not Congress. How many Americans really think that way? How many Christian American voters really think that way? And how many of them, if you ask them who's in charge of the United States or what force or authority is in charge of the United States, might opt to say the president of the United States is in charge? Yeah. So it's, it's funny because I just got out of a class and today in, in our, our class, we're covering the separation of powers. And one of the things we discussed was um, the changing dynamic, the relationship between the president and between Congress and the court system. And we discussed, and I went on a rant uh, about how Congress <laughs> has basically ceded a lot of its authority, a lot of its power to the president and to the court system yes. um, for a lot of different reasons, which you know, I won't bore you with now. Um, but what we've seen over the past you know, 80 years, especially since the, the FDR presidency, is, is the growth of the power of the executive. The imperial presidency. Yeah, the imperial presidency. And we've had one. Um, every president beginning with FDR onward has, I would maintain, abused power and has committed impeachable offenses, truly. If you're really concerned about the Constitution, um, you get worked up about what presidents have been doing since the time of FDR. Really, I might go on a go postal here, go on a rant. Like <laughs> this whole thing with Trump and the Ukraine, this is small potatoes in the history of presidential abuses of power. What Trump has done with Syria, what Obama did with Libya, what Bush has done and what Obama have done with drone wars and and you know basically what we have is a, an imperial presidency in which presidents have it, it not been accountable so, but, but uh, launching military attacks without a declaration of war by Congress is sort of an right example. yeah exactly now Congress has done certain th- has passed you know uh, the war powers resolution which ostensibly gives presidents you know um, you know some you know leeway and power but presidents have routine, routinely trampled on that mm-hmm. uh, presidents have done things to you know parlay their their political connections into political power. The Clintons have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, Obama and the IRS. That's absolutely. We can provide a whole litany of abuses of power by presidents on both sides. But very rarely do you see anyone who's willing to call presidents on both sides on the carpet for abuses of power. Sure. Um, so our Constitution was has been in not a crisis, but has been in troubled times for for a long time. And and, and I would say what we see with Trump in Ukraine is is simply one piece of a much larger troubling picture. I know that kind of got us off on a tangent, Chris. My apologies. Well, okay. So <laughs> let me, because I am the designated department optimist. Could these uh, the exercise of impeachment inquiries and eventually perhaps articles of impeachment against Donald Trump? 
maybe be a good thing for the Constitution. Uh, whether or not uh, Donald Trump is removed from office, could a Congress that is more willing to question the actions of the executive by any means, be uh, any constitutional means, sure. uh, be a positive force? I think that it somewhat depends on ultimately how the public is going to perceive it. So if the public perceives this as Congress taking its rightful place and and basically removing someone who everyone sees to be unfit for office, then it could be a good thing for the Constitution. But if mm-hmm. the impeachment power is perceived as being being merely a partisan tool, then impeachment becomes a less viable option in the future. Mm. Right. So I think it depends ultimately on how Democrats conduct themselves and also if people are willing to try to um, try to, you know, wade through all of the muck and actually come to the truth and understand actually, sure. you know, what's actually going on and, and ultimately how they perceive this impeachment process to be playing out. If, if they see it as, you know, a, merely a partisan mudsling, you know, then the no, this is not going to be good for the Constitution in the long run. But I would say if you're really concerned about Congress, ultimately, you know, flexing its muscle and reasserting its supremacy as the most important branch of government, um, the place to start is not with impeaching this president or that president. It's actually them actually, you know, not ceding their authority to the president, actually passing laws. Yeah. Um, and actually, like, you know, not requiring, you know, not expecting the president to take the lead in forming, you know, domestic policy. And we could say a lot more about right. that. And that if you're worried well. that this problem might get better with a new election, don't bet on it. No. Several of the prominent Democratic candidates have discussed openly what kinds of executive orders they would undertake um, if Congress would not work with them on specific policy goals. And that's just reaffirming uh, the growth of the imperial presidency. Right. And and I would say neither party has an, has been willing to seriously critique the imperial presidency. Both parties, whenever they're in power and whenever they have the White House, are more than happy to go along with the executive becoming more and more powerful. All right, gents, we need to sign off here. We need to get out of here. But um, we will keep tracking this story. We'll keep tracking these ideas. And especially as as, uh, new information comes out, especially new, really relevant information, not just the turn of the news cycle, uh, we will be thinking about what role does political science have to say um, in helping us understand this? And as Christian political scientists, what can we say that brings light to this issue? Um, on behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy on Channel 3900. We'll be back in your feed probably tomorrow with a new episode on Channel 3900. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing from you. You can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can also email the channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, thanks for listening, and go Royals. Go Royals!